Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. And the Word of God says this. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Father, you are our redeemer. You are our restorer. You are our refuge. You are the lifter of our heads for whom the Son sets free. He is free indeed. And so, Father, we plead with you right now that whatever may be binding our hearts or distracting our focus this morning, Father, that you will set us free from that by the power of your Spirit, for we are desperately needy for you, and that we will focus on the one whom the Bible says he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, for my sins. The punishment of the cross that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We are made new, we are set free, we are redeemed. So, Father, set our hearts free and ablaze this morning by the power of your Spirit, for we need you, and apart from you we are and have nothing We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. morning. If I seem a little excited, I am. Um, I got to go to morning times this morning. Got to get a cup of coffee at morning times. That's one of the great joys of being in downtown Raleigh. But the greatest joy for my wife Amy and I is simply to be here with you today. One of my favorite walks in downtown Raleigh is and was always the walk from the church offices right here, this church building, to the morning times. That was a glorious and a joyful walk for me because I knew my cup of coffee was at the other end. But have you ever had a difficult walk? Have you ever had a difficult walk? I remember one for me. It was like a walk of shame. You ever had a walk of shame? I was working in Sanford, Down US 1, I had just finished up at NC State, still lived here in Raleigh, working in in Sanford, and I was doing a very labor-intensive job. I was a builder, I would frame buildings, I would put a roof on, I would put shingles on, and the work was tiring and exhausting, and the days were long. And one day, I had finished up my work at the end of this long day, and I I was so excited about coming home. My wife Amy and I were just dating then, I was ready to see her, And I had to get gas, so I pulled into this busy, busy gas station at like 5.30 in Sanford on US-1. And I pulled up to the gas station, and I, I pumped my gas, and I got back in my car. I shut the door, and I turned on the car. I pushed the gas pedal, and I heard what sounded like a head-on collision. My car shook. I didn't know what had happened. I looked in my side-view mirror, and I saw the nozzle of the gas pump thing still in my car and I saw the hose hanging down beside my car. I had ripped it off the pump (laughs) and I I was at one of the back pumps. It felt like there were a hundred people just staring at me and made all this racket and I had one of two options in that moment. I could hit the gas and get back to Raleigh dragging that thing and save a little face (laughs) or I could put my car in park and I could walk back in carrying that hose and nozzle (laughs) right back up to the clerk in front of all those people. So I hit the gas. No, I didn't hit the gas. The Spirit of God took over. I parked my car, and I got the nozzle. I got the hose, and in front of all those people, I began my walk of shame into the gas station. And when I got to the door, people were coming out, and (laughs) it was crowded in there, and the clerk simply looked at me, 
he put his head down. He just started shaking his head. <laughs> and that was my walk of shame, one of many in my life. Some walks are difficult. Some walks are difficult. Today, we'll talk a lot about walking, not just physical walking, but some very difficult spiritual walking. Some very difficult spiritual walking. See, for some here, I'm sure you just feel lucky you were able to get out of bed and walk in here this morning because life is tough. Life is tough. I know it is. Work's hard and life's busy. There's not enough time. There's not enough hours in the day. And I promise I feel you on that. If you would have come to my house last week, you would have seen that we have a world-class yard mullet. You may be thinking, what's a yard mullet? A yard mullet. Have you ever seen the hairdo mullet thing? It's like all tidy in the front and it's long and crazy in the back. A yard mullet is like that. It's when you don't have enough time to cut the whole yard because you're too busy. So you cut the front. It gets all tidy for the neighbors, but the back has wild things living in it and shaggy and everything else because life is too busy. One of my kids, age six years old, <laughs> we thought we had potty trained this child thoroughly. Um, this child walked out of the bathroom. We were sitting around the dinner table one night. And I looked at my child and I said, did you wipe? And the child looked back at me and said, no, I did not. I said, why did you not wipe? And they looked at me and said, because I was too busy. <laughs> I thought if a six-year-old is too busy for that, I know how busy your life is this morning. I'm sure many are here today and you're feeling overwhelmed. You're feeling underwater. You're feeling overworked. And you're feeling just lucky to have made it to church today. If you feel like you're running on empty and the fire in your heart for God that once burned bright has just become a flicker. Friends, God has a word for you today from Ephesians. Not to simply change your circumstances. No, he loves you more than that. He loves you too much. He's ready to change your heart, my heart, and our perspective and reignite our hearts. Because when the gospel crashes into our hearts like you've seen all throughout the book of Ephesians. It gives us a new lens, a new way to see the world, to interact with people, and a new way to think and to respond. A renewed focus that will move the needle of your heart from E to F, from empty and exasperated to full of faith in a Father whose favor is on you forever. And He's ready to turn your heart from a flicker to a flame, and to a faith-fueled fire that's burning for His glory. Now, you've been journeying through Ephesians, and one thing you see over and over and over is the command to walk. Walk. Walk a particular way. You see it in Ephesians 2.1. It says, before you were in Jesus, here's what it says. It says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We've got a picture here that illustrates death. It's a picture of a tree. This is, you may say, is a Christmas tree. Um, this was our Christmas tree. This is not a picture of when we bought the Christmas tree. It was purchased in December. We would have never bought such a Charlie Brown Christmas tree. This is a picture of a dead tree in April when it was still on our back deck. <laughs> this is when I about experienced death, but my wife was very gracious. <laughs> she didn't kill me. Um, but this is a picture of death. We were dead. We had to be remade, born again, planted anew in Christ. You see, we couldn't fix ourselves. There was no little tweaking, no minor makeover we needed. We had to be made new, born again, made alive in Christ. And Paul reminds them of the gospel and says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, they were saved. They were moved from death to life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And now in verse 10, it says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that what? We should walk, that we should walk in them, having been brought from death to life. Now here's our next picture. This is a, this is a picture of life. This is my zucchini plant. This is our zucchini. This is a picture of thriving. It's a picture of flourishing. It's a picture of being nourished. It's a picture of life in contrast to the picture of death. Now I'm going to return to this one in just a bit. Ephesians 4.1. Paul urges them 
to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, with spirit-empowered humility, gentleness, patience, and love. Ephesians 4.17. He contrasts walking for Christ with the way the non-believer walks, and he said, believers, that we should no longer walk in that way, those old ways. And perhaps my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now if I walk to morning times early for coffee, first thing, it's going to be a bit of a slow walk, maybe a bit of a drag. I'm going to look a little, little out of it. But after that Ethiopian brew, caffeine-packed cup of coffee that I love for morning times, it's going to change the way I walk. I'm going to have a little bit of pep in my step. I might even bounce a little bit when I walk. I might even speed walk. But then if I walk by a Chipotle or on to El Rodeo and I eat a big burrito, it's going to change the way that I walk again. I'm going to walk a little slower, might even have to sit down. When the gospel crashes into our hearts, it changes the way we walk. It changes the way that we live in the world. Yet it's not just a minor change. It totally redirects us. It totally redirects our lives. You see, before we were dead in the sins in which we once walked, but now we're alive and walk in good works, Ephesians 2, and we walk in love, Ephesians 5, as what? As beloved children. How many of you needed to hear that this morning, that you are a beloved child of the King? I need to hear that every single day. And he says that as you're beloved by God's grace alone, through faith, now walk in love, imitating the way Jesus loved us. In other words, we live our life, our, we walk in light of the reality of God's gospel love that has crashed our hearts, and that love should turn our lives upside down for the glory of God. He says we should walk differently now in light of the love that we couldn't earn and didn't deserve, but received by His grace. So we walk in love, not to earn His grace, but because of what Jesus did in our place. We walk in love, not to earn his grace, but because of what Jesus has done in our place. And finally, in Ephesians 5.15, he pleads that they and us by extension look carefully then, it says, how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. So we must use the time well. Walking with a sense of urgency. And then verse 18, he says, and now be filled with the Spirit, and then he springboards from that into the realm of walking well to his glory in some very specific areas. Two weeks ago, it was as husbands and wives, as spouses. Last week, uh, my wife and I were blessed to be here as Pastor Sean talked about how we walk as um, parents and children in light of the gospel. And this week, it's in regard to our work and our work relationships. How do we walk well at work? In light of the gospel, how do we keep in step with the Spirit in our work and work relationships? Now, he's going to deal specifically with work relationships, and but the same principles you'll see here are just as needed and apply in every single area of life. So this is for the often unappreciated worker at the factory or the food joint or the janitor or school teacher in the school system or the unpaid, unnoticed, yet invaluable work of the stay-at-home mom or the mentally exhausted and overworked business executive or the physically exhausted landscaper, roofer, lumberyard worker or the school student trying to do their very best in the classroom but facing difficulties at home and pressures from bullying peers on the playground, or the exhausted, unnoticed, unappreciated single mom who's working two jobs and tucking the kids in at night and getting up early to do it all over again. See, life's hard. We know it, and most of our awake hours are spent in the daily grind of our work. So what does it look like to walk empowered by the gospel and filled with the Spirit at work? I've entitled this 
message, learning to walk at work, because friends, we are all deficient. (laughs) Every one of us. Like a baby, we all stumble and at times we fall and we're in need of God's grace to help us to walk well. Learning to walk. Check out this video. No, you all want to. Everybody say, (laughs) aw. Learning to walk one step at a time. What was most noticeable to me in that video was how often I saw the mother right there providing provision and protection. The Apostle Paul, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to help us see what it looks like to walk by the gospel, under the eternal provision and protection of our Father, and in step with the Spirit at our work. Do we have the zucchini again? Remember this guy? Looks healthy on the outside. Looks like it's flourishing, like it's filled with life. We had people come over and they were talking about the zucchini, maybe crushing on the zucchini a little bit. They love that zucchini. It's five feet wide, that's what I heard. But they didn't take the time to peel back the leaves to see that underneath that zucchini was producing nothing. No fruit, or in this case, veggies. Nothing. It was rooted. It looked good in a lot of ways, but there was no fruit. And that's how we can be as believers in certain spheres of our lives. Applying the gospel in some areas, but not living in light of the gospel in other areas. Looking healthy in many ways, yet in other compartmentalized areas of our life, hardly bearing the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And often, that area we struggle in most is the difficult sphere of our work and our work relationships. To begin yielding fruit, all my zucchini needed were the right nutrients. That's all it needed for us, for you and I, to walk in step with the Spirit at work and bear beautiful fruit. We must feed on God's grace through the Word. You've all seen Pink Flamingo, right? Some One of God's beautiful creations. Creation, beautiful creatures, bright, radiant colors. You've seen them at the zoo or on TV or in your or your neighbor's front yard, right? Did you know that a pink flamingo was not born pink? It wasn't born pink. It was born gray. It got that bright, radiant, beautiful color from what it feeds on, from its diet, from the shrimp and algae, the pigment in the shrimp and algae that it feeds on. We too begin to reflect the beauty of what we feed on and nourish our hearts in here. So let's dive in and allow God to permeate our souls so that by his grace, I pray we may radiate his beauty. Paul was writing from prison to those who've come to faith, including many families, many households. And within these households of people are different relational dynamics that he addresses at the end of chapter 5 and here in chapter 6. The main thing we need to know is that when the gospel slams into hearts and people fall in love with Jesus, it leads to a change in the way people act and relate to one another. Now, context is very important and not misunderstanding any situation. To illustrate this, I recently read a story from um, a Home Depot, a true story. Um, There was apparently a man who went into the Home Depot, and he said, you better get out of here. I'm going to blow this place up. And 
people frantically began running, leaving the Home Depot and frantically calling 911. And the police, in a hurry, showed up at the Home Depot and they found the man and he was in the bathroom. Context matters. (laughs) So let me reread and explain what could easily be misunderstood. I'm going to reread the text. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. That word slave can be translated servants. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Now, when we, when I, see or hear that word slave, we understandably view it through our American lens. I recently walked the streets of historic Charleston with my bride and our three children, and I I specifically detoured and walked them to a specific alley off of Queen Street. Do we have the brick? I'm reading a book um, called Barracoon. It's... um, It's a book by a very talented female African-American author, Zora Neale Hurston, about the last one of the last groups of slaves brought from the from Africa to the United States on a ship called the Clotilda. And it, it was this was after the transatlantic slave trade was outlawed. So this was a, a smuggling in um, and it details much of the despicable, racist, abhorrent and brutal transatlantic slave trade. Now, the picture on the screen is from an alleyway in historic Charleston, and the prints in the prints in bricks in the bricks are hand and fingerprints of young children. And bricks like this could be found scattered throughout that alleyway with these handprints. And I lost I lost my composure and my voice cracked as I watched my 11 year old place his hand over the smaller handprint in the brick. And with a cracked voice, I explained how those handprints were handprints of children of slaves who weren't strong enough. They were little. They weren't strong enough to do the other slave labor, but their little hands could turn the bricks their parents were forced to form, and it broke my heart. So when I see Paul writing, and I see a word in here like slaves and masters, I grip my teeth, and I want to hear him denounce any institution of slavery. But then when I start to learn the context Paul was addressing in this text, it becomes very clear that there were very big differences between the institution Paul is addressing here and that of the brutal slavery from our American history. Here's here's where understanding that day's context is helpful in understanding that the Bible never condones despicable, brutal, racist slavery. Instead, in 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul strongly condemns slave traders. So what are the differences between what we know and despise from our American history and what he's talking about here? Tim Keller notes these four differences that are very helpful. The first This institution here was not based upon race. Second, it was not permanent, usually lasted 10 to 15 years. Number three, it wasn't based on kidnapping. And number four, what they're talking about here, the slaves, the servants had rights and they they could own property and things like that. So what does Paul do in his writings as he addresses this topic through the New Testament? F.F. Bruce says this, Paul brings us into an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. So in proper context, Paul is dealing with servants and masters, and this is important, who are in a relationship that applies today to that of an employer-employee relationship. An employer-employee relationship. Verse 5. 
says slaves, or could be translated servants. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now, when you hear fear and trembling there, don't think fear like I run away from something. Think fear and trembling meaning respect and awe. This is fear, respect, like that would, fear, fear shouldn't, fear of God shouldn't draw us away from God, that we run away from him, but should draw us to God. This is the same word for fear that's used in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul says he knows the fear of the Lord, and in the same breath he says, and I long to be with him. I long to be with him. For the believer, appropriate fear doesn't drive us from God, but to him. So he says, servants, obey your earthly master with fear and trembling, respect and respect and all. So Paul says, treat them with respect with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Wow. Now check this out. Paul doesn't just say to employees, got to think, employees, employers. He doesn't just say to employees, do it, obey them. But he says, obey with respect. Obey your bosses with respect, with a genuine and sincere heart like you have for Jesus. He's getting deep. He's getting to the heart. Now, there is a huge shock factor here for the readers that we don't feel in our 21st century American context when Paul writes about how servants and masters are to relate to one another in genuine love. They're in shock that Paul would even speak directly to the servants. See, he didn't go through the masters, the bosses. No, no, no. The servants have rights. They have dignity. He spoke and talked directly to the servants, and that would have been unheard of. And he says not only obey, but he says do it with a sincere heart, with a respect like they feel for Christ. And as you'll see, even more shockingly, he's also going to tell bosses to do the same for their employees. We cannot fully get ourselves in a position to fully appreciate the shock value of what Paul is doing and saying here. It's like at my house recently. One day recently, I was pulling out of the backside of the neighborhood, and I was pulling out onto a busy four-lane road, and I looked over to the left, and there in the middle of the road laid our single, our solo family pet, our cat Simba, right in the middle of the road, and he had been freshly run over. And my heart broke. And my heart sank. I'm thinking about our kids. It's the only pet we've got. It's really the only pet they've ever known. And I, I, I just I broke out in tears. And so I know some of y'all dog lovers. But I cried over a cat. We love this animal. Simba. And so I, I, um, I had a plan. I said, okay, I got to get a box. So I got a box. And I came back. And I was going to get the cat so that we could bury the cat and do this as a family. So I get the box, I come back, and by the time I get back, the buzzards had taken the cat and pulled it to the sidewalk. And so I had to park a good walk down from where Simba lay. So I, through tears, I walked down the sidewalk on this busy four-lane road, and I get to the buzzards, and I shoo them away, and I look, and it's Simba. So I... I walk up in the woods, I get a big stick, he was pretty mangled, I wasn't going to carry him with my hands, so I get a big stick, I put him on the end of the stick, he's a big cat, so I'm now holding him up in the air like a flag, walking back up this four-lane interstate, we are in South Carolina, somebody probably did think I was out fetching dinner, but I wasn't. I'm, I, through tears, I'm, I'm walking Simba back up with my heart broken, I'd already at this point called my wife and explained to her, get ready to tell the kids. I get him to the car. I put him in the box in my trunk and I drive back to my house, which was not far away at all. I, the cat was putting off an odor now. So I shrink wrapped the box and I put the cat in the box in the backyard to get ready to bury the cat when my kids get home. All of this with a broken heart and through tears. And I go back in the house and my hands, which were very nasty at this point, needed washing. So I go back in the house. I wash my hands I turn to my left to see through the window and I look out on the deck and there sat my cat, my cat Simba. <laughs> now you imagine the shock of knowing that you now have somebody else's dead cat in a box in your backyard. <laughs> True story. 
And that's the kind of shock they felt as Paul is addressing them in this text. (laughs) We got to bring it home, right? (laughs) Regarding how they are to love one another. Because this is a radical, unworldly love that he's talking about. And they would have been in shock. (laughs) How? How do we do this? How do we do this? How does an employee have a heart of goodwill toward a harsh boss? How does a boss have a heart of goodwill toward an employee who has been disrespectful? Well, I can do it if the boss is super awesome and always loves me. Paul doesn't qualify like that. He doesn't qualify like that. In fact, in verse 9, he says they're not always kind. He said to the masters, he said, the bosses, he said, stop threatening them so they were obviously doing some harsh unkind things but Paul says servants obey them with respect and all and with a sincere heart as you would Christ not as I service as people pleasers but as bond servants of Christ doing the will from the heart verse 7 rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does This he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So Paul says, don't obey just to get approval from the boss. But respect them and obey when they're looking and when they're not. Because this is the will of God and you're doing it from a sincere heart and not out of obligation. doesn't just say do it, but with genuine goodwill toward them. Again, how is this possible. This is where the gospel of Ephesians comes crashing in because the gospel says everything I do is now for him because I am head over heels in love with him and his love has penetrated my hard heart and now permeates every aspect of my life including the way I view and relate to other people even at work. He loved me when I was unlovable And now I can see them, the unlovable one, as a person in the image of God who has God-granted authority in my life. So as I feed on God's gospel love toward me, I began to take on the brightness of his love and want to respect and obey them because I love and respect my heavenly Father who is my ultimate authority. And as Jesus washed the feet of even one who would betray him and many who would run away from him in his hour of greatest need. We as beloved children can follow God's example and walk in love toward people at work. He's placed an authority over us even though they will not treat us perfectly. They won't. Now verse 9 says, Masters, bosses, do the same to them. Do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and it says there is no partiality with God. He is a good father who bestows favor upon his children. Paul just dropped a bomb when he said, Masters, do the same to them. They're like, What? Do what same? Respect them. Love them with a genuine and sincere heart as you would Christ, as bondservants of Christ. You see, Paul just put them equally on the same playing field under the same master. He's applying the same principles of the gospel to masters, to bosses, as to servants, to employees. And he's saying that even within structural and role distinctions, the one in higher authority must equally serve and love, and respect, and care for the well-being of the other from a genuine heart to honor God and image forth the love of Christ that he displayed to us. You see, God has no partiality, and that's good news for us today. The gospel doesn't differentiate based upon position. God sees past that to the heart. So what are our practical takeaways from this verse? Because I can just imagine the script that's playing in your head right now. You're like... um, Okay, I get that if I feed on the gospel, then I start to reflect God's love. I get that, but hey, I'm just, I'm a student. What does this mean practically for me in my schoolwork? Or, man, I'm a factory worker. Or I'm a business executive. What, what does this practically mean for me in my work? Or, 
hey, I'm just a kid. I'm a kid sitting here. What does this mean for how I do my chores? Those are good questions. You're like, what, is, what does it look like in the nitty-gritty to walk in the Spirit in my work? I'm really glad you asked. Paul reminds them many times who they're really working for. See, if we focus, if we focus, if we set our eyes on where Paul focuses and remind ourselves who we're ultimately working for and how good he is as a good master, it changes everything. It changes everything about the way we want to do our work, why we do our work. Verse 5, it says, respect them as you would who? Christ. Verse 6, it says, he reminds them that they're bondservants of Christ. Verse 7, he reminds them that they're serving the Lord. See the pattern here? Verse 9, he reminds them that God is their master. In a very parallel passage, Paul, the same guy, writes in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, whether uh, word or deed, work heartily, as for the Lord, as for the Lord, as for the Lord, and not for men. When our gracious God is the one we're working for, he who, verse 9, shows no partiality, he who, verse 8, rewards perfectly, we're going to talk about that a little bit later, he who calls you in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, beloved, when we see he's our ultimate boss, here's how it changes our work. Okay, now I'm going to say this. I'm about to go through a lot of nitty-gritty. This is getting practical. This is like what it means in the nitty-gritty. It's too many points to put up on the screen. I don't, you'd be writing forever, I think. So I got a little stack of printouts of these bullet points down here um, because sometimes, you know, I think sometimes maybe you're, maybe you're a teenager, maybe you're an adult, I think sometimes we've never seen it modeled or it's never been told to us what it really looks like to do a good job at our work, what it looks like to work for the glory of God. So I wanted to get really practical with this. When we see God is our master and we know that we're beloved by the good master, here's how it changes our work. First thing, so simple. It makes us want to do a good job. We know we're working for him. Now, we got we to get a little more nitty gritty. What does it mean to do a good job? What does it mean to do a good job at work? First thing, we're on time. We get to work on time. Now I'm going to disclaimer. I'm not perfect at all these things at all. I'm very insufficient, but God is our sufficiency and he can grow us in all of these areas, okay? We're on time to work. Number two, we take initiative. We take initiative. We're not idle. Um, My wife and I are extremely... um, um, imperfect parents. But one thing we have is we have a chore chart for our kids. We're not always consistent with it, but it's got a list of the chores they are to do at certain times during the day. They're supposed to check off and sign that they did their chores as they were supposed to. We're trying to teach them responsibility. The last thing on their chore chart for each time they do their chores is that they are supposed to not just end They're supposed to go and find mama and ask mama what else I can do to help you because we're trying to communicate to them and teach them to take initiative. Next thing, we're to do what's asked without complaining. We're to do what's asked without complaining in our jobs. We're to not be idle. We're to not be idle. We don't just milk the clock. We're to work at a steady pace, to be hard workers and we're to finish the job to do the job well and to finish it all right next when we know that God is our master and we're working for him ultimately we're honest it makes us want to be honest okay we got to get that down to the nitty-gritty what does it look like to be honest at work it means that we don't cheat on our time our time cards we don't fudge on our time or our taxes with our earnings. We report our earnings. It means that if you're a waiter or waitress, that cash tip that's laying on the table, it doesn't just go in our pocket unreported. We're to report it. We're to to do what the government requires. If you have a side hustle, that's wonderful to earn some side income, but we've got to report our earnings. We're to be honest. When we understand that God is our master and we're secure in his love, 
It means that we're not crushed when we fail. We're going to fall down a lot at work. It means we don't blame shift. Here's what it really means. It means that if we're secure in his love, when we're in our jobs, it means that we don't shift blame to other people, but we own up to our mistakes. We own up to our mistakes. (laughs) Here's the next one. If we know that we have his favor, we're not crushed when we're overlooked for that promotion and and we don't retaliate when we're wronged. Colossians 3.25 says the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality with God. See, God is a just judge and he always knows the truth. We can trust him. We can rest in him. Here's the next. I told you there's a lot of these, right? (laughs) You're glad you're not writing, right? We're peacemakers. We're going to use our mouths to be peacemakers at work who de-escalate problems and encourage others rather than, get this, rather than create drama, slander, complain, or gossip. You want to stand out at work as somebody who's different, who's got the love of Jesus in your heart? Don't go to work and slander, complain, gossip, or drama because that's what the world does in the workplace often. Here's the next one. This is for employers. Employers, it means that you respect your employees. It means that you give ear to their voice. It means that you don't speak harshly to them, as he's already addressed in this text. And it means, I think this is important for employers to take note of, it means you prioritize people ahead of profit when profit may compromise your care for people. It means you prioritize people ahead of profit when profit may compromise your care for people. And you can do this by trusting God with any financial profit or any financial loss when you realize that your true treasure is in heaven. Here's the next one. We see and treat others as people, not as a pain in our side. Those who hurt others, they have a hurting soul. But so did we when God came to us. So did we. Love them and see past their action to their soul. Luke 6, this is Jesus speaking. He says, love your enemies and do good. Expect nothing in return and your reward will be great. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Next thing. Knowing that God sees and he's a good master, get this, we do our best work even when no one is looking. Even when no one is looking. Three three weeks ago where I work, the supervisor picked a random time to go back and review the cameras from the previous night. Now the employees there know that nobody frequently looks at the cameras. So he looked. Some people were standing around, kind of goofing off, kind of milking the clock. He took note of that. But one young girl, one young girl was busting her rear alone in the dining room, pulling out chairs, heavy chairs, working hard, working fast, and sweeping hard to reach places with nobody around and nobody looking. Treating her job cleaning as if the building were hers. Now that's what hard work looks like. And true character is on display when no one is looking. And finally, we set our focus. We set our focus on what we're really working for eternally. We set our focus on eternity. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a servant or free. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 again says this, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. We will receive the inheritance as our reward. You see, Paul is reminding us that our whole life is to be lived in light of eternity. Work is hard, and there are times when you may be overlooked, where you'll be overwhelmed and treated poorly. But in the big picture of 2 Corinthians 4.17, 
which was speaking of suffering for Jesus and for the kingdom. It says this, it says, This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are eternal, because the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We're working for the king, and we're working for eternal reward. So if your job, if your work stinks, and maybe it does for you, you can do it faithfully as long as God has you there. Mother Teresa said this, in light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth, a life full of the most atrocious torture on earth, will be seen to be no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel in light of eternity. This life is a vapor. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. Work is hard. Work is hard. But we've got to work to the glory of God. It's intentional. The time here is urgent. Our, lives are sh- our lives are short. And Paul says, focus on working toward what is to come. Remember that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who loved him. So store up treasures in heaven. Life is short, and I know your work is a grind. But when we go to work, kids, when you go to school, stay-at-home moms, when you're working in the home, we will never get that time back. And I'm not guaranteed my next breath. I am 42 years old, and I regularly see people my age in the obituaries. I read them regularly because it does my heart good to be reminded that my life is but a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. We won't get these moments back. We've got to use them and leverage them for the king. Let us live for eternity and as an act of worship. We must honor the king through the way we walk by the gospel and in the spirit at our work. I'm going to close with this. In 1975, there was a little known rock band at the time called Aerosmith who released a song called Walk This Way. You may hear Steven Tyler screaming that line right now in your head. In 1986, The song was covered and re-released by pioneer rap group Run DMC and featured Aerosmith. Now this was a breaking down of a wall, of a barrier, as it was one of the first times these two genres of music that had remained separated had now blended together. As you've seen throughout Ephesians, the gospel breaks down walls and unites and brings peace where things don't typically blend well together. Peace between us and God and peace between people in differing life positions who may naturally grind against one another. We've talked a lot about learning to walk well in the gospel at work. Now here's the irony of Aerosmith's title, Walk This Way. Walk This Way was named after a TV character who actually walked with a limp. A limp often characterizes need. For us to walk well in the gospel at work, above all else, we must see our constant need for God's grace. Now, one Sunday at our church, the church where my wife and I are members and attend, when the pastor asked at the end of service if anyone felt compelled to come to the altar and pray, I looked up and there were two families who had walked up and were now on their knees pleading with God through tears. Now, we knew their story. We knew both the families. Each has a son, precious children, beautiful children. One family's son has an incurable disease called NKH. Um, Like 500 kids in the world have it. His prognosis is not good. It's for a short life. Um, We pray that doesn't happen, and he can't walk at all. The other family... The other family has a son with cerebral palsy, and he's endured much 
trauma, much bullying, and many, many, many painful surgeries and procedures, yet he can hardly walk. Watching him tearfully pray, it broke my heart and it brought me to tears. But I realized that it was their recognition that they don't have the power to enable their sons to live and walk in healthy bodies that drove them to their knees. Spiritually, you and I can't walk in our own strength. We got nothing. We've got nothing. We are unable apart from God's grace. The only way for us to walk well is to start on our knees, gazing at the one who walked perfectly on this earth for us, who walked alone in the desert, resisting temptation, who walked heavy-hearted through a garden where he shed tears of blood, and who staggered up the hill to Calvary, bloodied and beaten, carrying his cross and our sin to die in our place so that you and I can walk free and forgiven. With eyes on eternity, cause Isaiah 40 says those who wait on the Lord will one day run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint. Let's pray. Father, you are our sustainer. You are the one like a newborn child who we are fully dependent on for we have nothing apart from your grace but in you we have been called beloved children and we have everything you have blessed us with an inheritance beyond comprehension so let us not live for the things of this world let us not be enticed over enticed by the joys and delicacies of this world that are short-lived but let us set our hearts and our minds on eternity where our true treasure lies God, help us this week in our work, whether we're at school, in the home, in the workplace, whatever it may be, help us to honor you and let the love of Jesus flow from our life and our lips that others may see and want to know what kind of hope we have because our life looks different and we can tell them about the hope we have in Christ. God, we love you and we pray all these things in the precious name of our crucified and risen Savior, Jesus. Amen.